0: We move uh, today, of course, away from chapter 6, the longest chapter in the, in the book of John, but there is a connection here uh, to what we've been looking at and what we look at when we get here in the 7. At the end of chapter 6, we heard Peter proclaim that there was no other leader, in essence, for, uh, for him to follow, for the disciples to follow, for Jesus has the word of life, and that they, being the disciples, have come to understand that he is God in the flesh. He says, because we understand it, there's nowhere else for us to go. It would be foolish for us to go anywhere else to to seek uh, a Savior to follow or a teacher to learn from, those sorts of things. But in this chapter, in chapter 7, we see the various groups of people. We see Jesus' brothers, the Jewish leaders, the crowds gathered at this feast we're going to talk about, all misunderstanding who Jesus truly is. Uh, What we see, uh, kind of going to take away from that today, is that there's no middle ground Regarding Jesus, you either recognize, like Peter did, that he is the Messiah, the Savior of sinners, and you commit to submitting your life to him. Or you doubt who he is and you refuse to submit to him. The question that we have to ask ourselves today, and I want you to kind of keep in mind as we work through this today, is am I living by faith in Jesus as my Messiah, as my Savior? And have I submitted all of my life to him? We'll come back to that question in a a form at the end. Uh, But let's keep those things in mind as we work through this today. All right, so I'm going to read from John chapter 7, uh, verses 1 down through 24. Give great attention to the reading of the very Word of God. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly if you do these things show yourself to the world for not even his brothers believed in him jesus said to them my time is not yet come but your time is always here the world cannot hate you but it hates me because i testify about it that its works are evil you go up to the feast i am not going up to the up to this feast For my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Father in heaven, would you open up our hearts and eyes and ears to understand the truth of your word and see the beauty of the gospel. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at at two things this morning, how the crowds here are confused about Jesus and have wrong expectations of him, uh, and then we're going to look at how these things astonish them and, and drive some of them to rage to the point that they're seeking to even, even to kill him. Uh, before we do that, let's just talk about the setting here. And the, this, this, uh, this passage is set <coughs> at the Feast of booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So what is that? Well, this feast was one of the most popular of the Jewish feast because, in essence, and it was a, a big party. It took place in, in late September, early October each year at the end of the harvest season. So this was a huge celebration of the end of the harvest, that they've gathered their harvest, and now there's a rest to come. Uh, but yet there also, it's a it's a time of giving thanks to God. So this is a big celebration. Uh, it was called the, the Feast of Booths because it was also a remembrance of God's faithfulness to Israel during her wanderings in the wilderness when the people lived in makeshift tents. And so during this feast, people would come and build little shelters uh, to live in during the time of the feast to help them remember and identify what it was like in the wilderness for their ancestors. And so they call this the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, little tabernacles where your presence (coughs) would be. Um, You can imagine that the scene... There in Jerusalem, when, when this uh, festival is taking place, it's probably a, similar to like a huge music festival in our day where people just come in with tents and just set up tents for miles and miles in the fields, and then they come out all day and just party. It's not that kind of party, but it is... Uh, you know, the scene was similar. And you can imagine why it's popular. This was a fun celebration. This was a fun feast. This is not like Passover where there's blood in the streets and everything's about killing and everyone's contemplating their sins and or kind of maybe down about all the offenses that they've committed throughout the year. That's appropriate, but it's not necessarily fun. But this is fun. This is a celebration. This is a feast of thankfulness and a celebration to God a party celebrating his provision historically and in the present. But in the events surrounding this festival, we see, like I said, a lot of confusion about exactly who Jesus is, uh, which leads uh, to people having vastly different expectations for how he should act and what he should do. So let's just kind of walk through the passage here and see who it is that's confused uh, about Jesus and have wrong expectations of him. In verse 1, it says, Jesus went about in Galilee... He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, that's a place setting. It just kind of tells us Jesus is in Galilee. This is his last time kind of being in Galilee as far as the the scope of his life because in six months, he's going to go to Jerusalem for the last time. He's six months away from his death, essentially, at this point. And so the Gospel of John is going to spend the second half of the Gospel of John is centered on that one week. So we're getting there Sort of quickly. Um, But uh, what's going on here is what we see there is that in Judea, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, why were they seeking to kill him? Well, we've talked about this some, that they didn't understand that he was truly God. And so they're confused about who he is. He is God, but they are not able to see that he is God, to understand that he is God. And therefore, they were convinced, they knew he was claiming to be God, but they were convinced that he was guilty of blasphemy and deserved to die. And so they're confused about who Jesus is. When we get down to verse 3, we see that his brothers are confused about who he is. Now, these are other sons of Mary and Joseph following him. He was born in a supernatural way. These were guys who were born in a natural way following that. Um, These guys grew up in the same household as Jesus, but they didn't understand who he truly was. Let's look at what it says about him. It says, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea. Go to the feast, basically. That your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then verse 5 says, For not even his his brothers believed in him. So how is that possible that they didn't understand who he was? They grew up in the same house with him. Because it's likely that he didn't walk around telling people that he was the Messiah until his public ministry started. It wasn't until John the Baptist baptizes him and proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that Jesus kind of started walking around saying, I'm God in the flesh, you should listen to me. We don't know a lot about his life before that, but we can assume that that being the public ministry is when he started teaching people the truth in detail about who he was. Um, we also think, also think that these brothers of his were probably like most kids. they were They were... When they were growing up, they were so self-consumed to realize that their older brother was actually perfect. (laughs) I don't know many kids who see outside of them. I don't know many people who see outside of themselves well, but especially kids. And so it's likely that they're just blind to it. It's amazing, isn't it? You can grow up with someone who's actually perfect. Of course, you're probably walking around going, well, there's Jesus. He's perfect. I don't know. Who knows what they were doing. But they missed the fact that they are living with God in the flesh. And so therefore, they're confused about who he is. But they hear his claims now. They hear what he's saying. They've probably witnessed some of his miracles. And they're telling him that he should go perform for the crowds. That's what they're essentially saying. Jesus said, this is true. You should go and make sure everybody knows this. Go get on a stage. Make yourself known. But John tells us there's a problem with this advice because they didn't believe in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. And so Jesus tells them about the root of their confusion. He tells them, my time has not yet come. Like I said, it was still six months until, the, until Palm Sunday, basically, where Jesus is kind of coronated by the crowds and allows himself to kind of be championed as this public figure and he's teaching, he's doing these sorts of things, but they want to make him king, and he's resisted that up until basically Palm Sunday where he comes in on the donkey and is kind of acknowledged as the Savior who's come in to Jerusalem, is coming to redeem Jerusalem. Well, that's still six months away. And so he's saying, my time has not yet come. But then he tells them, your time is always here. So What he means is that when you're living for yourself and living only for the things of this world, which his brothers would have been doing because they didn't believe in Jesus, that's the default. Remember, there's, we're talking about there's no middle ground. You either believe in Jesus or you live in the world. There's no halfway there. That when you're, when you're always, if that's true of you, then you're always simply living in the moment. It's always your time. You always think this is the time I've got to, got to take, take over the world, make a name for myself. You can't live for eternity if you aren't living by faith. And John's already told us they aren't doing that. But he also says that the world can't hate them, can't hate his brothers. And he says the reason that is because they are the world. They are doing the things that the world approves of. The world's not going to persecute them because they're not offending anyone. The world is persecuting Jesus because Jesus keeps telling the world the truth about who they are. He tells the Jewish leaders, we'll see it in a minute, the truth about their view of the law and how it's erroneous. And they go, you can't do that. We're going to kill you because you're offending us. They don't know they're in the world, but even the Jewish leaders are in the world. I'm getting ahead of myself. The world hates Jesus because he points out the things that are evil in the world. So who else here hates Jesus? Well, if we get down to verse 11, we see that the Jews, uh, oh, and I'm sorry, not who else hates him, but who's confused about who he is, the Jews who are looking for him at the feast are confused about who he is. Most of the time in John's gospel, the phrase the Jews refers specifically to the Jewish leaders. Here, in this context, it probably refers to the crowds that are gathered for the feast who would have been Jewish. Um, so a little bit different usage here. But it's, it's likely... Um, Well, what we see is they're they're confused about it. Some of the people here argue, we see this in verse 12, that he was a good man. Others say he's leading people astray. So there's an argument going on amongst the crowd about whether Jesus is a good man or whether he's a bad man, whether he's leading people astray. But we don't even get the sense that in the crowd, those who think he's a good man are actually on the believing side. They're just acknowledging that there's some good things about him. Some of them probably believe, but some of them maybe not. And so, But the crowd is even divided in their misunderstanding about how to understand the things they misunderstand. Is he, just, is he a good teacher? Is he a wise man? Is he a good man? Or is he leading people astray? The reality is he's neither of those things. He's the Son of God who has come to redeem them, to bring salvation into the world. Not just a good man, not leading people astray, but actually leading people to the truth about who they are and who God is and who he is. That's what they're missing, even in the crowd, amongst people who think he's maybe good. They're misunderstanding, confused about who Jesus is. Down in verse 15, when Jesus began teaching in the temple, the Jews marveled at him. Like I said, once again, maybe this Jewish leaders or maybe the crowd. We think it's the crowd still kind of in play here. So it's likely referring to them that they are amazed that Jesus could teach so effectively without having been educated under one of the famous rabbis of the day. Because what would happen in the teaching in the temple is that there would normally be crowds of people gathered around some teacher in different corners of the the complex there. And each of these these teachers are of a school of thought, of theology or something, of training. And so they may say, well, I studied under rabbi so-and-so, therefore... This is why my teaching is right. And So in the other corner, this guy's saying, well, I studied in the school of Rabbi so-and-so, and therefore my teacher, my teaching is right. I had the best training. And So there's different schools. We see this is also true in the church, right? Paul confronts the church later on and says, some of you say, I'm of Apollos, and some of you say, I'm of Paul. He says, but let's be of Jesus. So it still continues. We see it in our day well, I follow this famous preacher, or I follow this prime preacher, or I follow this famous preacher, and whatnot. Not that that's all necessarily bad, but when that's our identity, it becomes a problem. But it's always happened, and we see that here. And so when Jesus shows up and starts teaching, the people know he hasn't been to one of these famous schools. He hasn't been to the right seminary, in a sense. He isn't claiming the teaching of Rabbi so-and-so, or so-and-so, or so-and-so. He's showing up and saying... I just have this wisdom. It came from the one who sent me. Well, if you read through the lines, and sometimes he's even blunt about it, what he means is, I got this from God because God's the one who sent me. I'm above the schools. All of the schools of theology have errors. Yes, even us in our day. And Jesus says, I'm beyond that because my training didn't come from some man. I got trained. I am God in the flesh. My training is beyond this world. My understanding is eternal. My wisdom is perfect. The schools of theology can't compete with this. But that's all the people knew, so they were amazed that this unlearned man had this wisdom. We see the same thing happen with the apostles in Acts, right? It says that Peter and John, I think I have the quote here. Um, It says, uh, uh, in in Acts, um, when Peter and John were teaching, I think it was Peter and John, um, they came to him and they said, they were amazed at these unlearned men. It said, but it was evident, it became evident that they had been with Jesus. And so what they said, what they're saying is, they studied, it became evident that they studied in the best school. They walked with Jesus for these three years. And they had a wisdom that's beyond what everyone else. They're unlearned. These guys were not even just didn't go to the right school. They're blue-collar fishermen. But they have an understanding that's amazing. Where did it come from? They've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. May that be said of us, right? That people would, would hear our theology, hear our understanding, watch our lives, watch how we love people, watch how we live. Watch how we conduct business and do life. How we struggle through suffering. And may they look at us and say, what's different about those people? Oh, they've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. When he actually confronts the, the people here, the Jews, uh, the Jews who are teaching there and, and whatnot, and when he starts teaching, it was uh, Jesus tells them, he tells them that they're confused. He tells them, you don't understand my authority because it comes from one who's greater than any earthly teacher. Then he tells them, if they truly knew God, as they claim to, all the Jews would claim to know God, right? He says, if you truly knew God and were seeking his will, you would understand that and recognize that this teaching is from God. He's confronting their understanding of scripture. And he starts to he doubles down on that starting in verse 19. He references Moses and the law. Look at verse 19. He says, "Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me?" What Jesus is basically saying here is he says, "Look, you know the law. The law forbids murder. And yet you are trying to kill me." He's speaking broadly there. He knows people in Judea want to kill him. He says, you, you've read the law that says that y'all shall, you shall not kill. But yet you are trying to kill me. You don't understand the law. Now, they might come back and say, well, you're a blasphemer and you deserve to die. But Jesus knows he's not a blasphemer. He's pointing out their hypocrisy. He said, you, you claim to live by this law. You say the law is the most important thing to you. But yet you're not keeping the law. Of course, they look at him and they say, what? You have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? Well, the Jewish leaders are trying to kill him. That too. (laughs) The crowd may not be at this point, but the Jewish leaders are. But they accuse him of having a demon. He's accused of that multiple times. Because when people don't understand, they automatically go, my understanding must be better than your understanding. If my understanding is right and comes from God, then your understanding must be bad and comes from Satan. They've got it backwards. Those who are confused about Jesus have a lack of understanding. Jesus' understanding comes from God on high. All right, so as we walk through this, Jesus refers to the previous episode we saw back in John 5 where he healed the crippled man at the pool on the Sabbath. He, when he says, I did one work and you all marvel at it. That's the one work he's talking about. When he healed that man publicly who was by the pool at Bethesda, remember he got up and he took his mat and he walked. And what happened? The Jewish leaders came and confronted him and said, who told this man to carry his mat on the Sabbath? And this man goes, Jesus did. So that's when they decided, to, you know, that was part of that process where they were really honing in and wanting to kill Jesus. Because he's telling people to violate the Sabbath in their minds. By telling this guy to carry his mat. Um, But here's what he says in verse 22. Uh, He says, Moses gave you circumcision. And then he says, well, technically Abraham gave you circumcision. But Moses, uh, through Moses came the rules governing the sacraments. So that's what he's kind of getting at there in verse um, 22. Where he says, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So he says, Moses gave you these rules about circumcision. And Jesus goes on to point out that they don't hesitate to circumcise their baby boys on the eighth day, even if that day falls on the Sabbath. Now, technically, according to part of the law, it would be wrong to do that work, or at least the Jewish leaders' understanding of the law, the way they've been applying it. It would be against the law to do a work like circumcision on the Sabbath. But the Scripture's clear that you should circumcise your baby boys on the eighth day. And so if the eighth day happened to fall on the Sabbath... They kind of set their Sabbath rules aside and circumcise the baby. Jesus is pointing out this inconsistency. He says um, that they are breaking one part of the law to keep another part of the law. Now notice he doesn't tell them that they're wrong, just that they are inconsistent in their application of the Sabbath. They are willing to set aside their rigid view of the law for themselves and circumcision of their children, but they want to kill Jesus for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath. You get the hypocrisy. We can do what we understand to be right in doing a ritual that points us towards healing, but we can't actually do. But it's against our rules for you to do real, true healing on the Sabbath. Jesus wants them to quit judging by appearances, but to judge with right judgment. That's the last verse 24 there. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In the context, he's telling them to be consistent in applying the law to acts of mercy. But he's also challenging them to see him rightly. If they want to truly please God, which is their reasoning for being so rigid about the law, if they want to truly please God, they need to recognize Jesus for who he truly is. But they're confused, just like the crowds, just like his own brothers. Now let's stop here for a moment and acknowledge that it's possible that there's something in this passage that we're actually confused about. We might be confused about something in this passage because it appears that Jesus tells a lie here. Did y'all catch that? <laughs> back during the conversation with his brothers, you might have noticed that Jesus said, uh, let's see, back in verse... Eh, where's that? Uh, verse 8. He said, You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. And then in verse 10 it says... But after, the, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. Okay, did John write this down wrong? Or did Jesus tell a lie? Or neither? <laughs> neither. Um, the, the Greek scholars, of which I don't pretend to be one particularly. I, I read them and can understand them on some level. But uh, the Greek scholars say that the phrase here in verse 8, which reads, I am not going up to this feast can also carry the meaning of I'm not going up to this feast at this time. It was kind of an understood possibility within the phraseology there. But our, our translation is trying to be faithful to what was actually said. But the meaning there, I think there's actually a footnote um, in, the, in, the, in the ESV, for example, the footnote says adds some manuscripts add yet. So some people later on put that back into the manuscript or... You know, we're not 100% sure which manuscripts are the actual more faithful ones. Most of them don't have yet, but it's, they say it's to be understood there. So he says, um, but we also think it could mean that Jesus is saying to them, I'm not going to the feast in the manner that you want me to go. That Meaning that Jesus wasn't going to make himself the center of the attention at the Feast of Booths. They wanted him to go and kind of put on a show, do a little magic, make himself famous. And Jesus doesn't intend to do that at all. When he does go, he goes quietly in private. And then he goes and finds a quiet corner of the temple and starts teaching. And eventually, people come to him. But he doesn't put himself on a stage in the spotlight. We said that will happen six months later on Palm Sunday when the crowd starts celebrating him. All right, so let's talk about the astonishment and then the rage that kind of follows here. The confusion about Jesus, it leads to this, this astonishment and even to this rage. So let's look at who was astonished at him. Well, first of all, his brothers, who thought he should, like he said, make himself famous in the world. They couldn't believe that he was claiming to have these healing powers and to have come from God, but he doesn't seem to want earthly fame. That doesn't connect for them. There's a disconnect between who Jesus says he is and who, how they understand that should logically play out in their own minds. It doesn't make sense to them that he would wait on God to kind of signal to him that it was time to go to the feast. He should just run in. We think that thinking about the will of God, maybe Jesus is kind of waiting for a word from God that, hey, I should go to the feast from his father. I and mean, their will is one, but kind of a an prompting. And he eventually goes. Maybe that's what was going on there. They think, though, regardless of that, he should just go and bask in the faint. His celebrity is starting to grow. People are starting to talk about him. They're murmuring about him at the feast. Why would he not go? Because they misunderstand who he is. And they're astonished that he would not embrace this. That's not what he's about. Those who heard him teach were astonished. We already mentioned that they were amazed at the fact that he had wisdom that didn't come from earthly teachers and earthly schools. Um, like we said, they said similar things about the apostles, that they were uneducated common men, and the crowds were astonished about them as well because they had been with Jesus. We also see that there is astonishment about Jesus' boldness, his boldness to call out the Jewish leaders for their wrong understanding and application of the law. No one did that. These guys were the experts. No one questioned them. And all of a sudden, there's this little guy From this little town, who's been working as a carpenter his whole life, who has no training and no teaching in the seminaries of their day, is walking up into their business and saying, you are wrong. That was beyond the scope of understanding for the common Jew of that day. To question the teachers of the law. Because they were the experts. They were the professionals. They were the ones called by God in their mind to interpret the law for them. And to tell them what was expected of them. These guys, these teachers were the experts. No one was foolish enough to confront them in this way. And we sense the rage here that surrounds Jesus. The Jews are enraged that Jesus claims to have authority that comes from God. They're enraged when they're told that they're, they're seeking to kill him as breaking God's law, the law that says thou shalt not kill. They're enraged that Jesus would point out their inconsistency in their Sabbath practices. We know that they're enraged. Because like I said, in just six short months, they're going to nail him to a tree for being a blasphemer. They're going to kill him. The rage is building, and they're looking for an opportunity to arrest him, even at this time. But what we really see when we compare this passage to Peter's declaration at the end of 6, like I said, there is no middle ground. We're either with Peter or we're with the Jewish leaders and his brothers and the crowds, in a sense. You either see Jesus as the Messiah and you pledge to submit to his lordship over you or you reject him and see him as foolish like his brothers did in their unbelief or you're so angered by his boldness and his claims that you want to kill him. There is no middle ground. Jesus is either the king of kings or he is a charlatan. The resurrection, though, is the proof that we need. It's proof that he is no imposter. Jesus is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Because he has come from heaven to save us from our sins, the only right response to him and his teaching is to live in submission to him all the days of our life. That's the calling upon us. To see ourselves for who we truly are, sinners in need of a Savior, to see him as he truly is, the Savior that's come from God to redeem sinners, and then to submit our lives to him, for he is the Lord. So at the beginning of our time today, I said we need to ask ourselves, am I living by faith in Jesus the Messiah? And have I submitted all of my life to him? We submitted all of our life to him. So now that we're in, let me rephrase that last question because it's not really fair. Here's a better question. Are you living a life of faith and repentance in every area of your life? i rephrase the question because it would actually be pastorally unkind for me to pose a question that might lead you towards thinking or feeling that you have to be perfect to be right with God. Have you surrendered everything to God? And you go, well, I haven't surrendered everything. Oh, no, I'm lost. No, that would be a pastorally unkind to me because none of us have surrendered everything to God. And none of us will as long as we're in this flesh. But last week we talked about how even Peter, the one who was so sure and so bold in his proclamations of faith in Jesus, denied Christ. Not even Peter was fully sanctified in this life. But as we look at Peter's life after the resurrection of Jesus, what we see is a life of growing faith and growing in repentance. Maybe we even say continual repentance. I heard a preacher say that there was a time that he would regularly stand before his church at the end of a worship service and having a song, a song, a hymn like I Surrender All. Y'all know that song, right? I Surrender All. The implication of that song is if you haven't surrendered all, then you haven't surrendered anything. And he would actually say that. If you haven't surrendered everything to Jesus, you've given nothing to Jesus. The reality is that none of us has surrendered everything, and yet God is still pursuing us and loving us because he's merciful and kind and gracious. He's loving towards his children. So, are we supposed to surrender everything? Yes! That should be the direction of our lives, towards surrender. We're pursuing surrender. But knowing we won't accomplish all of that in our life, do we just give up? No! No! We need to realize that Jesus, while never calling us to perfection, has called us to to continual repentance and faith and to trust in the fact that he was perfect in our place. Ah, we just kind of jumped the shark there a little bit, right? Because he calls us to surrender. But yet in his gracious and goodness, when we fail to surrender, as we all do, But yet we live by faith in Him and repent when we see our failings. What He does, the reason we're able to do that is because He has already given us His righteousness. He has surrendered everything and now His surrender is our surrender. And yet oftentimes we find ourselves out living in the middle between obedience, sin, and being okay with it. That's the problem. It's the being okay with part. What we think that repentance and faith looks like in this not able to completely surrender life that we live in, what is that? Well, I don't think it looks like trying to do the impossible and live, like I said, somewhere in the middle between faithfulness to Jesus in some area of our lives and being okay with being consumed by sin or even earthly desires in other areas of our lives. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves and live lives that are intent on glorifying Him and enjoying Him forever. And repenting when we fail. Committing to fight temptation, resist our fleshly desires. We're called to continually repent, to continually believe, to continually fight against sin and to fight for holiness throughout our lives. I think the key is to examine each part of our lives. And to ask ourselves, is there any part of my life where I'm refusing to repent of my selfish control, my refusal to give Jesus control of this area of my life? Any part where I'm fighting to keep control over it instead of allowing him to rule over it? Maybe it's an area where we think it's not a big deal, and maybe I can even hide it from people, and maybe I can even hide it from God. And if no one knows, "Eh, that'll be okay, right? No, no. Maybe it's an area where we think the price of submission to God's will in that area would be too costly. It might cost me my job or cost me a friendship or cost me something that I've deemed too costly. But yet Jesus is calling us to trust him, to surrender, to live in all areas of our life under his lordship. So he calls us to submit all of our life to him. That's what lordship implies. You can't be halfway under authority in that sense. Because he demands everything. We can't decide that Jesus should only be lord of some parts of our lives. We need to be seeking to repent, believe, and fight in every area of our lives. Even if we find ourselves doing so imperfectly. So can we sing, I surrender all? Yes, in faith that God's working in us to be sanctified. That our goal is to surrender all. So we can even see that. But it's about perspective. Not that our righteousness, our right standing with God depends upon our surrender, but that our right standing with God compels our surrender. When we get that backwards, we find ourselves on the wrong side of that middle ground. We're made righteous because of what Christ has done, not because of what we are doing, even in our surrender. But yet, his call upon us demands and calls us to surrender. So why would we submit ourselves fully to God or to anyone or anything else? Why would we give up control? Because he loves us. Because even while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love for us by sending his son to die for our sins. And he promises to love us, to never leave us nor forsake us, but to remain steadfastly with us even to the end of the age, to carry us all the way home. Why would we not gladly surrender and trust that he is our salvation and he came for us and for our salvation. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We see pictures in scripture today of people, Peter, who by faith puts his trade, faith and trust and hope in you and is seeking to surrender his life to you. Is compelled towards that end. And then we see others, the brothers, the crowds, the Jewish leaders who are seeking to live separate from you, to reject the Savior that you sent. would you help us to stand with those who are of faith, who trust in Jesus Christ to redeem us from our sins, help us to put our faith and hope and trust in him, and to fight sin, to fight our want of self-control, to give you control of our lives, to resist controlling everything and living for our own glory, to live for you and for your glory. Help us to love to love you with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves because you have first loved us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.